you've been here over a year or more, you've likely had a Sunday like this with me. Uh, if you've attended last week and whenever you left and were coming here this morning, you likely, if you knew what I was going to through, it probably expected me to continue in Galatians today. Yeah, which, which I was too, <laughs> until about Friday. And I had a talk last Sunday after church with the Holy Spirit, or maybe that was Dean, one of the two. <laughs> and uh, well, I get those two mixed up a lot. No, just kidding. Um, but he will even tell you, I brought something up to him that had been on my mind for some time, and that is, with the world the way it is, many people probably have the end of the world on their minds. And, you know, I have never been one to really face this topic, I would say, super head-on from the pulpit. Uh, I had a few times where I've brushed up against it. I finally found Ecclesiastes, if you're still looking. That's page 804. But uh, I probably brushed up a few, you know, just because if the text demands it and whenever Bible book I'm going through or even... We did a focus for four weeks once during Advent on the end of the world, the second coming. But other than that, there just seems to be ministers out there where it seems like 80% or more of their pulpit time is preoccupied with the end of the world. And that's just not been me. And when things get like our world is getting, inflation, a war that was supposed to be over in a few weeks as far as Russia was concerned, and then over maybe a few more weeks as far as all the other people telling Russia to stop, and that still seems to be going on. And with COVID and monkeypox and corrupt-sounding courts, and boy, is it is it the end of the world? I'm usually very structured and organized when it comes to my sermon prep. I like preaching verse by verse. I didn't like stopping Galatians in the tracks and saying, okay, let's handle this. I would rather finish Galatians, but you know my preaching speed. And this timely examination may not be so timely after Galatians, whenever I'm done with Galatians four years from now or whenever that is. Or, you know, the world may have calmed down by then or who knows. I, I, I'll be trying to open up in heaven and Jesus will be like, no, we don't, we don't need to preach Galatians right now. But maybe we're in a, another cold war for the next several years with things this tense. I don't know. And so on Friday, I, I told the Lord, I said, I really don't feel like I'm getting anywhere in Galatians. I, I did was working on a sermon, and, he, and I said, you know, I do have this topical examination in the back of my mind, and what do you want? And, and actually, I just kind of stopped where I was praying, and I just started prepping in that direction. Excuse the prepping pun, but I started prepping in that direction. But, but the way I want to frame this topic... Uh, the basis I want to take probably isn't going to be what you might expect at first because we're entering this topic, the end of the world, es- eschatology, a theological word coming from two words, eschaton, last things, and then ology, study of. And we're entering this study of last things by way of the feeling of our time or the tension of our days. So then I feel like I need to address that tension first. Does that make sense? The, uh, because we have some particular lens on already, right? Things look a little grim. Is it the end of the world? Well, let's look at that first phrase. Things look a little grim, so I think it might be the end of the world. 
Furthermore, I could likely commit the rest of this year and many years to come if I said, let's do a topical series on eschatology and then just leave that idea, eschatology, wide open. (laughs) I don't want to do that. If you want to do that, I can suggest some books for you to assist you as you read the Bible, but I'd rather eventually get back to Galatians, eventually finish our series in Samuel and Acts before the end of the world comes too. So, here's how it's wide open. Maybe I'll preach this sermon, feel content about the matter, and return to Galatians next week. Maybe the Lord will keep on dropping on me ideas to to, to beat around in this general can of worms I just opened this morning. I don't know. (laughs) Uh, I do plan to eventually preach Revelation someday in the future, probably after I'm done with Acts. So I, I probably won't be going there thoroughly right now. I don't know. I wish, being the usually organized sermon writer I am, I wish that I had an idea, but I just don't. Eschatology. End of the world. Everyone starts in Ecclesiastes. No? No. That's where I felt led for this message. And if you want to turn to Ecclesiastes in your Bible, I do invite you to stand for the reading of Ecclesiastes 1. This won't be super... It'll be kind of verse by verse, but I'll be jumping around the Bible a bit today. Ecclesiastes 1. We're just going to read all of it for our purposes right now. These are the words of the teacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Futility of futilities, says the teacher. Futility of futilities. Everything is futile. What does a man gain gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets. It hurries back to where it rises The wind blows southward, then turns northward, round and round it swirls, ever returning on its course. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place from which the streams come, there again they flow. All things are wearisome, more than one can describe. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear content with hearing. What has been will be again, and what has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there a case where one can say, look, this is new. It has already existed in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of those who came before, and those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow after. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom all that is done under heaven. What a heavy burden God has laid upon the sons of men to occupy them. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun and have found them to be futile, a pursuit of the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, behold, I have grown and increased in wisdom beyond all those before me who were over Jerusalem and my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. So I set my mind to know wisdom and madness and folly. I learned that this too is a pursuit of the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow, and as knowledge grows, grief increases. Let's pray. Father, as we look into this topic this morning, you know our time, our places, our boundaries, the things on our hearts and minds, the way our world is going. And Lord, we profess to you as not only Quakers, but as Christians, that you speak to our condition. You know exactly what's going on. You can say the things that are important 
and are relevant to our time, you can say it through your scriptures, you can speak to us through your Holy Spirit. So, Lord Jesus, we invite you to be the one speaking and not I. We invite you to open up our hearts and minds, Father, to receive your word. I pray that you would be glorified and that we would be built up in the faith. We pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. What has been will be again. And what has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there a case where one can say, look, this is new. It has already existed in the ages before us. Do we believe that? Is that the case for every single thing in history? How literal is this? I taught, well actually taught is a word to be debated, but I taught this book, Ecclesiastes, as a super young youth pastor to a bunch of teens and I stunk it up. (laughs) Because it's a book that sticks out like a sore thumb in the Bible. I've heard it described very well from another pastor that while all the kids on the playground are playing tag with boogers coming out of their noses, this is the kid with a pad and pen looking at bugs making notes. Like, this guy is different. This book is a thinker and philosopher. And to completely not only understand what the author is saying here, but also to believe him as credible and viable, I think we need to hear what he said about himself. First, he opened saying, These are the words of the teacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. This is King Solomon. Now, do people argue that it couldn't be? Sure. Am I going to entertain those theories today? No, it's King Solomon. And he said this too. He says, I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I set my mind to seek and to explore by wisdom all that is done under heaven. Then, verses 16 and 17, I said to myself, Behold, I have grown and increased in wisdom beyond all those before me who were over Jerusalem, and my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. So I set my mind to know wisdom and madness and folly. Here's what this guy's saying. I had the wisdom and I had the resources to do whatever I want, whenever I want, however I want. So I used that to my full advantage. This guy was an American on steroids. I'll give you an example. One of Christie's cancer doctors is a Honduran by birth. And she came back this past week from a checkup and she had talked a little more to this guy. And so she and I were curious. So I went online on my phone with an app called Street View put out by that wonderful company called Google. And Google had literally captured on camera, has literally captured on camera much of the world's roads. So she and I were able to travel down a highway in Honduras via Google just to see what it looked like in March of 2020. That's the day, apparently, when the pictures were taken. I was able to go to an encyclopedia website, read up on some Honduras history. They had a coup d'etat back in 2009. Now, this was unthinkable in Solomon's day to wonder, I wonder how it looks. What's the culture and history there? And then within a few minutes, have a virtual ride down the highway and read up what you want. 
But for Solomon in his day, he was close. Money was not a problem, period. What food he wanted, he could have it imported in. What woman he wanted, he had. What experiences he wanted to do, he was the king and he could do it. What knowledge he wanted, God gifted him with the wisest mind on earth so that foreign leaders would humbly come to him for advice. Anywhere he wanted to go, he could go. And so Solomon says, essentially, I took full advantage of this. And I set out on what my grandpa would say with tongue-in-cheek, a seafood diet. (laughs) Whatever food I wanted, whatever food I could see, I ate it. And not just food food, but whatever experiences, people, places he wanted, anything, he held nothing back. He fulfilled his appetite. I remember growing up and hearing one of my parents say, if I just had $100,000, that's all, right? I'd be happy. Bills would be paid, no debt, enough to live on, really. Saying that word just, because that... That, that is just money compared to some millionaires. You know, it wasn't asking for much in comparison with the rest of mankind. But the striking thing for Solomon is he had nothing we little peons have to worry about, right? Not only did he have the proverbial $1,000, money was not even a concern one way or another. So why does this book sound like a suicide note? Kevin, you're setting the stage for who the author of the book is and you're getting off topic at the end of the world. Here's the point. The world's wisest man with everything he ever wanted, every activity he could try if he so desired, and he says everything is futile. What does a man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets. It hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows southward and then turns Northward, round and round it swirls, every returning on its course. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full to the place from which streams come. There again they flow. All things are wearisome, more than one can describe. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear content with hearing. Some of you maybe park in front of it. You know there's a tree in front of the parsonage. It was there before I came. And if it's not chopped down, it'll be there after I'm dead. The hill this church is on, it's been here probably since the beginning of the world. Unless if you want to believe in Pangea and all that. Perhaps Native Americans once ventured through these woods for generations. In the late 1800s, some Quaker pioneers put some homes here around the year 2000 when the world was first ending. People came out here. People left. A fire Came through 2015, a few homes burned up, lives were changed. Some folks have been moving since the world has ended in 2020. We'll all die, they'll all leave the hill. We'll still be here. And Solomon is saying we seem to trick ourselves. We seem to believe something, that that, that something is going to happen. And I do it this way, I scroll far too long on my Facebook and news apps on my phone. And I'm embarrassed to confess this, I haven't done this in a while, but there have been times where I've literally logged onto a news website, Fox News, CNN, wondering and maybe even hoping that something big happened. Sadly, that might mean disaster more than good, but it's just because we like new. We, we, We seem to like to be preoccupied. 
We like distraction. Uh, heaven forbid we wouldn't word it this way, but it's almost like we, we like to worry about something. We need something good to worry about. And Solomon, likely writing this in his old age, with all the resources and accessibility he's, he's had with everything, he's saying, I've seen enough sunrises and sunsets. I've felt the wind in enough afternoon breezes. I've swam or sailed enough to know that it's all the same. It's all been there before. It'll all come back again. You know, I noted the river was was high again on uh, Monday whenever I went to town. Did you know it's been high before? It'll be high again. Plus, the river's always been there since I've been a kid. Some of you have lived longer than me, but you'll likely verify it's been there as long as you can remember. But there's still people, you know them, I know them, perhaps you and I are here every now and then and we don't even know it. Oh my goodness, that hailstorm, right? I'm not saying shame on anybody, I'm just pointing out what Solomon's pointing out. He's kind of a rain on a parade sort of guy, but he says, yep, a hailstorm happened. It's happened before too. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there a case where one can say, look, this is new. It has already existed in the ages before us. You know, it wasn't until I was watching a documentary on our Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. I watched it around the end of 2020, or maybe it was 2021, I don't know. But then I realized something. If you didn't know, Clarence Thomas was all about the Black Panthers. And then he had a political turnaround. He's pretty conservative. And as I watched that documentary, I had Justice Amy Coney Barrett's circus hearings in the forefront of my mind. When, with the George Floyd riots, and I decided, who am I kidding? 2020 is no big deal, it's the 60s again. And as for Amy Coney Barrett, that's just Clarence Thomas's hearings all over again. Superinflation this year, holy cow, I've already read news reports making connections to President Carter's year. The government can't be trusted a rigged election and we could trust the Republicans with Nixon in the 70s, right? It's all happened before. Threat of nuclear war, Russia's a ticking time bomb. Good thing Kennedy didn't have to deal with that. It's all happened before. There's nothing new under the sun. So, with that truth, how could I ever deduce wonder or come up with any remote ideas that the world could be ending? What makes this season in our world, at our time, different from any other season? So a lot of people like to look to Jesus' words on the Mount of Olives. Matthew records it this way in his 24th chapter, verse 21. Jesus says, For at that time there will be great tribulation, unmatched, From the beginning of the world until now, and never to be seen again. Aha, some might say. So in order to do good Bible interpreting, Kevin, we must take what Solomon says with what Jesus says and say. Obviously, the end of the world is in its own category. And so the biblical counsel is history basically repeats itself until the end. At the end... It will be a worldwide pandemic, catastrophic, unparalleled, unprecedented, and Kevin, who's to say that's not now? But I want to say a few things about Jesus' words, and I think you might guess what they might be if you know my views about the end of the world. But first, I want to take a look at the fact 
that Jesus was Jewish talking to Jews, likely using Hebraic ways of talking. Hebraic, a fancy word meaning customary to Hebrews. If I told you, Dean, you did take that last cookie. I caught you red-handed. Would someone far removed from our time, place, and culture scratch their head? What, did he, did he have a sunburn? Was, was his hand painted red? How does he being caught with a red hand have to do anything with taking the last of the desserts? What? Now, you and I would know what I mean is that I caught him in the act of taking the last cookie. When Moses was in Egypt and the plagues were taking place, God had some words to Moses about the plague of hail. Exodus 9.18, Behold, at this time tomorrow I will rain down the worst hail that has ever fallen on Egypt from the day it was founded until now. God didn't take into account last Sunday afternoon, I know. But when we read about the locusts in Exodus 10.14, we read, The locusts swarmed across the land and settled over the entire territory of Egypt. Never before had there been so many locusts, and never again will there be. Except for in 2019 through 2021. Did you hear about that? You want to talk about food supply in the East African and Arabian Peninsula, according to the United Nations Food and Agricultural Organizations. No, I didn't check the fact checks, but the infestation presents an unprecedented threat to food security and livelihoods in the Horn of Africa. One article I read said the situation was fueled by unusually heavy rains, causing a big concern in the Horn of Africa, where more than 24 million people are food insecure, and 12 million people are internally displaced. Now, the most liberal estimates of just the Israelites coming out of Egypt are 2 million. And that's taking a passage about how many foot soldiers uh, were listed in Exodus 12, 37, and 38, and adding more in to account for women and children. We don't know how many Egyptians there were, only that Egypt feared that the Israelites were getting too numerous for them, and we don't know if the plagues were conducive to every nook, cranny, town, and city of Egypt. It could be. Exodus 10:14 did say the entire territory of Egypt. Or was it just to the areas where the Israelites were nearby, which also would have been considerable in its own right? 24 million people, food insecure. We toss around million too lightly, I feel like. 12 million people internally displaced in these past few years. Are you doubting scripture, Kevin? Are you saying that God was lying when he talked about the hailstorm and how it was unprecedented or for the locusts and that it would be the worst in history? No, I'm taking into account how Hebrews wrote and spoke. They spoke with flourish and hyperbole and exaggeration at some times. Give you another example. The prophet Isaiah in his 13th chapter is giving a prophecy against Babylon. Now I want you to hear this. The Babylon that is no longer. (laughs) The Babylon that fell a long time ago. That Babylon. And he says of that chapter in verse 6, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore all hands will fall limp and every man's heart will melt. Now, will all hands fall up in the sense of, well, good for whoever attacked Babylon. They couldn't even hold swords. 
let alone they were dying from their internal problem of the hearts melting. I don't hope that's not what's going on with you, Steve. <laughs> no, it's, it's a poetic illustration of how afraid they'll be. How about verses 9 and 10? Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel, with fury and burning anger, to make the earth a desolation and to destroy the sinners within it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The earth? A desolation? Sinners destroyed within it? Turn on the news and tell me if there's still sinners around. It doesn't take much... And thank God it's beautiful out there in the spring as opposed to it being desolate. And the last time I checked when the skies were clear, the stars are still in their places And thankfully, the sun, I think, is shining behind those clouds today. Now, this is a fulfilled prophecy, too. Most people believe that, no matter their end-time view. But I have, I will say, run into people who really want to argue with me and say, well, if this hasn't happened, as God put it down in Isaiah, it's not a fulfilled prophecy. It's yet to happen. And I want to say, that's wanting to take the Scripture how you a 21st century modern Western person have been taught that it is somehow respectful to ignore literary styles of the people who wrote these words and demand a literal interpretation. And that's actually kind of impolite and that's actually kind of disrespectful to the writer. Imagine if I said, boy, I could go for a whole cow right now and not a hamburger. I wouldn't know what to do if you pulled up with an entire cow cut, quartered, and prepared. I'd probably say, I think you missed my point. I'm hungry, but this is a bit too much. The point of the prophecy? God's judgment on Babylon is going to be brutal, epic. It's going to bring down a huge empire of great power wherein the people who have feared them for generations, it's going to be a changing of an era. It's like the stars are getting reset. The universe is taking note. So when we started on this goose chase... We recall that Jesus said in Matthew 24:21, For at that time there will be great tribulation unmatched from the beginning of the world until now and never to be seen again. Well, Kevin, Jesus is talking about the end of the world here, though, so it could be that he's being literal, that it's rather unprecedented. And first I would note that even within the phrase, that, that I do find to be poetic and, and illustrative more than literal. But Jesus even leaves room for after the event that he's talking about. Hence, never to be seen again. As in, supposedly there will be time after this event. But by extrapolation of the sentence, the sort of tribulation that Jesus is talking about will be so great, so immense, so catastrophic, that nothing like it will be in the time after the events. Does it make sense, the argument I'm bringing up? As in, uh, it leaves room to suggest that Jesus is not talking about the end of the world here if there is time after the event he's talking about. Is that easy enough to follow? Okay. I'll take the, the general. Mm-hmm. As Okay. Do we have any more information as to what time Jesus is talking about? It is true that many people today find Jesus to be talking about the end of the world here. I'm one of those weird people that want to take Jesus at his word, I guess, too literally. Because what does Jesus say in verse 20? That's one verse prior. He says, pay 
Pray that your flight will not occur in the winter or on the Sabbath. Now, I find one word very helpful in distinguishing what time frame Jesus might be talking about, and I find a similar word in verse 23. But let's just read up to verse 23 so you can hear the continuity after verse 21. Verse 22 says, If those days had not been cut short, nobody would be saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. At that time. Well, what time is that? The same time Jesus is talking about in verse 21, about the tribulation. If anyone says to you, that's the important word that sticks out to me. A similar word stuck out to me in verse 20. But he says, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. Like I said, I take Jesus literally here. He's talking to some of his apostles, and he says, pray that your flight, and he said, if anyone says to you, now I know I was brought up in public school, but I'm going to assume off of the rules of how pronouns work, and off of the fact that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who all share this occasion of Jesus' life, and never gives us any reason to even remotely assume that Jesus suddenly entered into another dimension, where he gave this discourse and is suddenly talking to an audience that didn't live in his time or place, I'm going to assume, rather conservatively, that Jesus is referring to his hearers when he says, your or you, because that's usually how English works. It's usually how the original language worked, and it's how every Bible scholar or layperson reads the Bible in any other narrative where a person says you or your to their hearers. That's usually how they follow it. And I say every other narrative except for ones like this. Now, I hope the logic is easy enough to follow here. I'm not asking if you 100% agree with me, but hopefully you can see where my logic is. It may not be only because you or I have been taught some things about this passage that are imported, that is, foreignly applied, not from the text itself, but from common teacher of this text, that we are given lens or special glasses as to how to read this text. Now, I just might want to address a question you might have clearly. Some of you are maybe thinking, does Kevin think? Kevin, are you saying that Jesus was stating that these events that he describes in Matthew 25 were to occur in his hearer's lifetime? Yes, that's what I'm saying. I believe it's logical to assume that when he gives them directions to follow, he expects them to be alive to follow them. But I also want to respond by emphasizing that I also believe that these events he described happened, and I find these events different or separate from the end of the world. And I would dare you to go home and read Matthew 25, Unless if you're reading a very loosey-goosey translation, I believe you will not find phrases or words like end of the world, the end of time, or the end of history, or the consummation of history, or anything like that. You will see words and phrases that you have been taught that might refer to the end of the world, such as the coming of the Son of Man, or the Son of Man on the clouds, or the abomination of desolation but you will not see any phrase that remotely suggests that what Jesus is talking about is the end of the world. It will not be in ink. It might be in study note ink. But if you think about that phrase, the coming of the Son of Man, and if you say that has to mean 
Christ's second and final coming. Look over at Matthew 10.23. It's not in a passage that is at all referring to the end of the world. Nobody thinks that it is. But Jesus says to his disciples, When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. Truly I tell you, you will not reach all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Hmm. You know, it's been likely almost 2,000 years since Jesus spoke that phrase. And A, I'm sure there's been more than enough time to witness to every geographical area in Israel, probably multiple times, considering the changing of populations. B, I think every person that Jesus was talking to is dead. So, either Jesus was lying, mistaken, wrong, or this phrase, the Son of Man comes, has happened in a way that doesn't refer to the final coming of Jesus. I'm going to go with the latter because I just believe Jesus doesn't make mistakes. So, what's the point, Kevin? Here's what we've uncovered. Solomon says there's nothing new under the sun. We've had inflation before. We've had the threat of war before. We've had tyrannical governments before. We've had a lot of bad things happen all at once before. It's just happening now in a 2022 way. Jesus says to his disciples that they would face tribulation If you read Acts, you would know they did. If you know your church history, you would know that they all died. Martyrs' deaths saved John the Apostle. If you read Josephus, you would know that Jerusalem and the Jews had a horrific war around the 70s. And Rome desecrated and burnt their temple to the ground before it was all said and done. Kevin, I thought this was an end of the world sermon. You caught me, I tricked you. Kinda. Kevin, do you think it's the end of the world? Honestly, here's what I believe. The end of the world could happen at any time. Jesus could come back today, tomorrow, a few months, a few years, or I believe it's possible Jesus could come back another 2,000 years from now. Furthermore, I don't believe, this is me personally, you're welcome to disagree, that there are world events to look for to point me to the direction of his coming. I don't believe that the world needs to look like it's going to hell in a handbasket. For all I know, the world could fill and be peaceful and chipper and cheerful when Jesus decides to come back. Now, a lot of the people who do feel like the world needs to be scary and Christians need to be persecuted for Jesus to come back and seven-year tribulation this and Antichrist that, I just don't agree with their view of the Scriptures. That's for another sermon. And you're welcome to disagree with me. I won't cry over it. Where do I find scriptures referring to the end of the world? We talked about them a few Advent series ago. Romans 8, 1 Corinthians 15, 2 Peter 3, maybe Revelation 21. All of them talk about the fact that God will redeem creation at the end of the world. Only one of them talks about his judgment, 2 Peter 3. But none of these lay out any necessity for any particular world events to take place for these passages to be fulfilled. Maybe it's just me, but there is a comfort I feel in knowing that the Bible says this. There is nothing new under the sun. We're not seeing anything new. Now, are some things scary? Sure. But they've been scary before. Are bad times coming? Bad times have come before and people have survived. Is it a bummer? Sure. Just as upset and maybe worried about it as the next person. Will we make it out alive? Who knows? Is God faithful? Is God faithful? 
Is God sovereign? Does God win in the end? Will God preserve His kingdom? Will God bring ultimate justice? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Surely as I have planned, so will it be. As I have purposed, so will it stand. I am the Lord and there is no other. There is no God but me. I will equip you for battle, though you have not known me, so that all may know from where the sun rises to where it sets that there is none but me. I am God and there is no other. I form the light and I create the darkness. I bring prosperity and I create calamity. I, the Lord, do these things. Drip down, O heavens, from above, and let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open up that salvation may sprout, and righteousness spring up with it. I, the Lord, have created it. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. I declare the end from the beginning, and ancient times from what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand. And my good pleasure I will accomplish. I summon a bird of prey from the east, a man for my purpose from a far off land. Truly I have spoken and truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it and I will surely do it. In him we were also chosen as God's own, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything by the counsel of his will. For in him all things were created things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You know, I'm content knowing this. Whether God comes back today, or if we're in for some hard years, a hard season, God's still on the throne. My joy comes from Him and Him alone. My peace comes from Him. My hope is in Him. And my life is in Him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, reminded of a picture that many of us For me, it seems like it's always in the shower and I'm thinking about an argument and I should have said that. (laughs) Because a lot of us like to have the final word when it comes to any problem, any calamity. It could just be me, but I feel like a lot of people want to have the final word. Well, all the suffering right now makes sense because God's coming back. Did people think that when Rome was falling? Did people think that when they couldn't grow potatoes in Ireland and everybody was starving to death? Did people think that during the Black Plague? Did people think that when the entire world was at war two times? And do people think that now? What we do know is that you bring good, even from evil. What we do know, as Dean touched on in Sunday school, that you are in the boat with us in the storm. Father, whether you come back today, of course, all of us would pray it, or you come back hundreds of years from now, we just pray you would have us to be faithful to you as you are faithful to us. Help us to be a people of hope and peace constantly. Father, that in a world where other people, not just Christians, but other people are running frantic and scared that 
they would come and find hope, peace, fellowship, warmth, because we're being you to people. Help us to be your ambassadors for truth, for peace. Father, help us to ease the suffering of another whenever we can. And help us to take all of our hope, joy, peace, and life in you and you alone. Not in some hidden knowledge we think we have about the end of the world, but in Jesus, our Savior and Lord, yesterday, today, and forever. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.